The Hamlet Podcast, episode 63. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. As I promised last time, this new scene, Act 5, Scene 3, brings Macbeth back to the stage after quite an extended absence. It's not so long that he should appear to have aged since we saw him last, although some productions do choose to show a change in his features for this final act. We've heard from Lady Macbeth that he's at war, and in the last scene we heard from several Scottish nobles about the arriving English forces and this union of armies gathering to fight against him. Now he enters, storming onto the stage with a great opening line. Bring me no more reports. Let them fly all. Till Burnham Wood remove to Dunsinane, I cannot taint with fear. What's the boy, Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus. Fear not, Macbeth. No man that's born of woman shall e'er have power upon thee. Then fly, false thanes, and mingle with the English epicures. The mind I sway by and the heart I bear shall never sag with doubt nor shake with fear. In case we had any doubt in Macbeth's faith in the witch's prophecies, Shakespeare reaffirms it immediately. He bursts on, insisting that he doesn't want any more reports, all but dismissing the attendants that presumably come on with him. He doesn't want to hear about anyone else leaving him. They can all fly. They can all escape to the other side. It doesn't matter. Until Burnham Wood removes itself and wanders across to Dunsinane, again, something that is really rather impossible, he will not taint with fear. We've had so many images of colours and paleness and pallor and appalling ideas in the play, it's important that now he insists that he won't change to the colour of fear. He dismisses Malcolm, too. He undermines him by calling him a boy. And what's to fear there? Was he not born of woman? For none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Another of the prophecies he's relying on. The witches and the spirits they conjured to present these apparitions, spirits that know all mortal consequences, have pronounced him immune to any man who was born to a woman which, if you don't think about too many complications, means just about everyone alive. Macbeth quotes his memory of the apparition. Fear not, Macbeth, no man that's born of woman shall e'er have power upon thee. What the second apparition actually said, and we heard it, was, Be bloody, bold, and resolute. Laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. There's something almost humanising about hearing Macbeth's interpretation of the line. He quotes it, but not verbatim. He's been utterly seduced by this message, and now repeats his own version of how he remembers it. And he continues, showing us how he's feeling. He insists that the false thanes can fly, so he already knows that he's losing men to Malcolm's cause. He's now said twice that they can fly. They can go mingle with the English epicures. This is a lovely little insult, suggesting that the English forces are too fond of nice eating and luxury to be worth worrying about in a battle. 
The idea goes all the way back to Hollinshed, one of Shakespeare's major sources, who suggests that until the English brought fine dining and overeating to Scotland, the Scottish people had no knowledge or understanding of fine fare or riotous surfeit. It's a very Shakespearean way of upgrading the source material, but English epicures is a very tasty dig. Macbeth concludes his State of the Nation speech with a rhyming couplet, insisting that he is in no way afraid. The mind with which he rules and holds this sway, and the heart in his chest, will never be burdened by doubt, nor made to flutter with fear. The mind I sway by, and the heart I bear, shall never sag with doubt, nor shake with fear. And of course, as the tension starts to ramp up in the final act of a play like this, you know that as soon as someone says something like that, something big is about to happen. Sure enough, a servant enters, looking so shaken that Macbeth responds immediately. The devil damn thee, black, thou cream-faced loon! Where gots thou that goose look? This is one of the great Shakespearean insults. Let the devil damn you for looking so frightened and stupid. It's a nice antithesis. Let the devil burn you until you're black for looking so pale and white. More specifically, cream. The servant has big news, but is obviously frightened to have to tell Macbeth. So much of this administration has relied on keeping a straight face. False face must hide what the false heart doth know, and look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it. At a time of any crisis, it's just annoying to see this servant coming in and betraying his emotions so obviously. This is why Macbeth is calling him an idiot or a loon, and he asks why he's come in with this goose look. Geese are proverbially giddy and flappable, and, of course, they're usually white too. The servant can barely get the words out, he tries, saying, There is ten thousand. But Macbeth interrupts. Geese, villain. The servant has to continue and explain. Soldiers, sir. It's another one of these shared lines of which I am so fond. There is ten thousand geese, villain, soldiers, sir. And it bounces between the two performers. Ten thousand soldiers is a huge army. King Edward and all of the thanes who are now false to Macbeth have an enormous amount of manpower. Macbeth is fond of his goose joke, and that's why he's repeating it. He's making light of the servant's fear, and as far as Macbeth is concerned, it might as well be so many geese flocking against him. He says, Go prick thy face, and overread thy fear, thou lily-livered boy. What soldiers, Patch? Death of thy soul, those linen cheeks of thine are counsellors to fear. What soldiers, Wayface? If you ever have to answer an essay question on paleness in Macbeth, this is a key reference. Macbeth tells this servant to go and prick his face, perhaps with a needle, to draw just a little blood to rub on his cheeks to make them red instead of white. He encourages him to overread his fear. A pale face is a scared face. This servant is lily-livered, too. The liver was considered a regulator of passion and courage, and so of red blood. 
so if you were lily-livered, even your passion and your courage were going to be a bit pale. Macbeth asks, what soldiers? And he asks twice, presumably either because he's looking out to try and see them, or else he's about to reiterate his prophecy that no human man can defeat him, so therefore no soldiers either. Either way, he wants to know who the servant means. Patch is a diminutive, another way to call this servant a clown or a fool. Death of thy soul is a little expletive or an oath. He's fuming at the scared face of this servant. His face is so pale that his cheeks are linen, another material that was proverbially white. These linen cheeks are counsellors to fear. They show clearly how scared he is. And Macbeth asks again, What soldiers, Whey-face? Whey is the pale, thin liquid left behind when milk is separated into curds and whey. The poor servant isn't even as pale as milk, but as milky leftovers. He answers Macbeth's question with, The English force, so please you. These ten thousand soldiers are the English army. They've arrived. Now, anyone in the castle who is in their right mind and who is not protected by a supernatural prophecy would probably be very nervous or scared right now seeing all of this gathering in the distance. But Macbeth isn't bothered. He dismisses the servant. Take thy face hence. Shakespeare traces this image right the way through to this withering dismissal. The servant exits, and Macbeth calls for another member of staff. Seaton, I'm sick at heart when I behold... Seaton, I say. This push will cheer me ever, or deceit me now. I have lived long enough. My way of life has fallen into the sear. The yellow leaf, and that which should accompany old age as honour, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have but in their stead curses, not loud, but deep, mouth honour, breath which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. Satan! There's a curious anomaly to this new character, now summoned by Macbeth. His name is probably pronounced Seaton, but there's another way of saying it. If you prefer, you could pronounce it Satan, which seems rather startling. For Macbeth, even in all of his evil, to summon Satan by name and summon him three times, that number that has been so magically proven throughout the play, seems a bit extraordinary. I've read of some productions who respond to this by having the same actor play this part and the mysterious third murderer, which could be quite satisfying as this weird malevolent force. But while there's something provocative about the idea of Macbeth calling on Satan, and not being answered. As we will see, there isn't much other payoff, which makes me wonder if it isn't just another name. In between his cries for Seton, Macbeth has a remarkable speech here. He tells us that he is sick at heart, but doesn't quite finish the line. He bounces to the next one after calling for Seton, or Satan, again. This push, the advance of the huge English force, will either secure his rule and cheer him forever, or else deceit Macbeth right now. So he's either going to keep it or lose the throne. There's something kind of cool as well about the fact that deceit, as in 
take him out of the throne or the seat also sounds like deceit, as in deception. It's going to be an all-or-nothing moment. And the deception? Well, Macbeth is rather deliberately not seeing that coming. The lines that follow show how much Macbeth's outlook has changed since the start of the play. Now, he says, he feels that he's lived enough. If death is imminent, he doesn't seem to care. I have lived long enough. My way of life has fallen into the seer. Despite his scorn for the lily liver of the servant, Macbeth is feeling that his own life has fallen into a place of dry, withered decay. Not for him the blood-red passion any more either, it seems. He anticipates that his life will not have an autumn, symbolised so clearly for Shakespeare as a yellow leaf. In one of the most beautiful of his sonnets, number 73, he gives voice to the experience of old age, saying, That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. Not for Macbeth, this melancholy experience. He feels he must not look to have it, nor any of the things that should accompany old age, like honour, love, obedience, troops of friends. Macbeth has lost, or is currently losing, all of these things. Just because it's a short list and a short speech, we cannot overlook this. Honour, love, obedience, troops of friends. And he has none of them. It's pretty devastating that he can reel off these as confirmed losses, if he ever felt like he had them at all. He must not look to have them, and in their place or their stead he will be cursed. Curses not loud but deep. It's all whispers now, rebellion and shifting allegiances and nobody telling him the truth any more. They won't curse him to his face. The curses won't be loud, but they'll be deep and lasting. And somehow Macbeth knows it. All he will get is mouth honour, Shakespeare's way of saying lip service. He might hear what he wants to hear, but he knows well that even if their breath is giving voice to one thing, their poor hearts would prefer to say the opposite, but they cannot. Curses not loud but deep, mouth honour, breath which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. A very clever editor spotted an echo from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me. And this is almost exactly how Macbeth is feeling, without perhaps equating himself with God. For good measure and the rule of three, he shouts for Seton again. Whether it is an incantation or just a clear example of how Macbeth really has lost the obedience of his household, at this third call Seton finally appears. But we've covered quite a bit for this week, so we'll save his entrance for the next episode. Thank you as ever for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.